This is a main hustle media podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the single simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back. Listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Militantly Mixed podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Chumash and the Tongva people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, the busiest. Mixed race, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, comic book nerd, cat mom, mask making, Gulf Coast Cosmos, comic book co-owning, Asian American Podcasters Association's Golden Crane Award winning podcaster in this podcasting game. This is episode 129 and it has been a really difficult week for those of us that are from Asian descent. Besides the increased violent attacks against Asians and Asian Americans since the COVID-19 pandemic, the murders that took place last week in Atlanta have really struck some internal issues and points of pain that, that I am dealing with. I have talked a little bit about it over the last few months, but for the first time, I think really for the first time in my life, I am actively addressing and dealing with issues I didn't realize I was experiencing related to my Asian heritage. And that why I have always described myself as hierarchically mixed, that I'm black first and then Japanese and then British American. I I thought I was a lot more secure in my Asianness than I actually am. And over the course of the last few months, as I have started to be embraced more in Asian and Asian American spaces, it has brought up a lot of issues and emotions that I that I have with it. And because of that, also recently you've noticed that most of my guests are of mixed Asian heritage, and that is because the people I've been interacting with who find the show through these things that I've been participating in have been the recent people who have been on the show since December, people I've been interviewing since December. And so while it hasn't been intentional that I was actively pursuing people of mixed Asian heritage to be guests on the show, I was just, I've just been in so many more Asian and mixed Asian spaces that it has afforded me this opportunity to connect to a lot more people of Asian heritage. And then on top of it, what is happening in the world right now, or at least in this country, in the United States, where I'm recording from, an increased amount of violent attacks against Asian and Asian American people, and of course, the murders that occurred in Atlanta. And I am really struggling to figure out how to process what I'm feeling against what is happening in the world. I don't want to take up too much of this particular episode's intro discussing that, so I will at least just say that I have released a live stream that was on March 18th, but it's still available on YouTube for viewing, in which I sat down with uh, three other people of mixed Asian heritage, and we discussed the increased violence against Asians, and we discussed um, the murders last week, uh, which will be available probably by the time you're listening to this intro. I've already released the audio of it um, on the Militantly Mixed 
podcast platform, but it is also available on YouTube and I will put a link in the show notes in that. I've been lucky enough over the last week to participate in a a few safe spaces to talk about and process my feelings related to the murders in Atlanta last week and the increased violence against Asians, starting with Sonia Smith-Kang, the president of Mask Multiracial Americans of Southern California, hosted a live, uh, an Instagram live with Asian Soap last Wednesday, and uh, they discussed what had happened on Tuesday of last week. Um, And then following that, I participated in a fireside chat with the Asian American Podcasters Association, in which after that discussion, everybody that was on that call took away an action item to create resources for Asian American Podcasters Association to release so that other podcasters could know what to do to address these issues. I'm going to be sharing some of those uh, bits of information as they become available, because I do think they'll carry over into the everyday citizen, what you can do if you want to support um, the Asian American community. And then, of course, I had my own live stream with Asian Soap, Naturally Mona Lisa, and Tiffany Lytle, all content creators of mixed Asian heritage that um, where we were able to have an open discussion kind of um, from our mixed Asian and our content creation perspectives. Like I said, I'll put a link to the show notes of that live stream and the audio will be available on the Militantly Mixed podcast platform as well. But I am not fully prepared to engage outside of the Asian American and or mixed Asian um, community spaces on this topic yet because I haven't quite figured out where I'm at and, and what I feel. Um, I do know that I want to support the community. I want to know what my entry point into supporting the community is. Um, and I'm doing that work right now. So I am by no means the expert, the go-to person to discuss this. I have a number of people that I go to, to discuss this with. Um, and I, I just encourage y'all to open up your social media, uh, searches and things like that right now and follow a lot more Asian American, uh, activists platforms and in- increase your access to information and knowledge. Um, because that is actively what I am doing right now as well, but I will do my best to share what I can as things become available to me. And as I am learning, Uh, One way in which I'm trying to leverage Militantly Mixed to support the Asian American community right now is similar to last year when I created the Mixed and Hella Black fundraiser t-shirt for Black Lives Matter, uh, in which 100% of the profits of the purchases of those shirts went towards Black Lives Matter and continue to do so, except that um, that shirt has not been available since I left my previous dropshipper and have been converting things over to my current dropshipper. So that shirt will become available again soon. Um, but I have launched a, a mixed and hella Asian t-shirt that is also a fundraiser t-shirt. 100% of the profits of that shirt will be donated to various Asian American organizations that are doing work towards ending the hate focused on Asian or Asian American people. And I have a few of those listed because those are the ones that I've already researched and, and have access to information about. But as I learn more, I will probably be adding more organizations. As of right now, the ones I'm focusing on is Stop AAPI Hate, which is Asian American and Pacific Islander. I'm going to be focusing funds in that direction from the purchase of those shirts. 
also Butterfly Asian and Migrant Sex Workers Network, uh, which provides resources to support um, people of Asian descent and migrant workers in the sex work industry. And also the Asian Americans for Housing and Environmental Justice here in Los Angeles, who we have been um, filtering funds through here and there uh, through my mask by main company, um, the head of which is, is Camila, who you would have heard from on the intersectional AF episode last May. So I will continue to do my research and I will release information as it becomes available or as it becomes available to me. But I really do encourage you all to engage in as much as you can on learning about what is happening in the Asian American community right now, because as mixed people, I think we understand the importance of solidarity, but within our separate mono-ethnic communities, we should be doing some work and communicating the importance of uh, solidarity because the root cause of this problem that we are experiencing in the Asian American community right now and in the Black American community and the Latinx American community is white supremacy. That is the root problem. That is the root evil, white supremacy and white terrorism. And that is what happened in Atlanta last week. That is what has been happening in this country for as long as this country has existed, honestly. Um, but without solidarity, we are not going to be able to protect ourselves. We also need solidarity from the white community, the white community that wants to combat white supremacy within their own spaces. Um, We also need them too. But I think starting within our internal monoethnic groups and our mixed race heritage groups, uh, we can hopefully support the other communities that are experiencing trauma at the hands of white supremacy and white terrorism. Um, There's a lot of work to do. And it has been just an insanely emotional time across this whole last few years of, of not knowing how to process every time there's a hate crime. But um, again, I don't want to focus all of this intro on on that topic because the guests that I have today, we recorded two months ago before um, this was part of the news cycle. Uh, So it's not addressed in this particular interview, Uh, but I will address it in other episodes and in other ways on all of the militantly mixed platforms. Um, So continue to stay focused on that. Uh, my guest today is Kate Medina. She is a, a senior at Berkeley and one of the executive directors at Mixed at Berkeley. And um, I am just so grateful to Mixed at Berkeley, uh, first for inviting me to participate in their mixed month last October. But since then, I've had a chance to speak to a number of their directors and and members. I also was invited to speak last month on a Black and Asian solidarity panel with a fellow cousin, Rohan Jolie, with incoming or potentially incoming Mixed at Berkeley students. And it was a really wonderful experience. So Mixed at Berkeley really for me and for Militantly Mixed is kind of the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, Kate is also one of those gifts. We had a really wonderful conversation. And like I said, it was recorded back in January. She and I had tried to 
connect at the end of last semester, but it was around the time that she was experiencing finals. So we recorded in January before this last semester began. So she is in her last semester, her senior year at Berkeley, and it's been a very difficult year because of the pandemic and not being able to actually be uh, a, a meet space Berkeley student. So we talked a lot about sort of mourning the loss of what your final year at college could have been. Um, we talk about her own mixed race experience within her Korean and Mexican heritages. And of course, we get to know her a little bit better. I do want to highlight that we we did have some internet connectivity issues, most of which I cut around, but there are some clicks and pops and some, you know, trailing out here and there throughout the episode that I couldn't really fix and or cut around. So I just wanted to let y'all know that. The other thing is it came up the mixed bill of rights towards the end of the episode. And while we have talked about the mixed bill of rights on various episodes of Militantly Mixed in the past, I am not 100% sure if I've ever read the mixed bill of rights on the show. So I want to read it to you right now so that you have this in your mixed race arsenal as you maneuver the world as a mixed race person, um, but also just so that you kind of have it in your head when it comes up in the episode uh, towards the end. The Mixed Bill of Rights was something that was, uh, I believe it was first published in 1993. It was written by Dr. Maria P. Root, a PhD. And it is, uh, I mean, when you really need affirmation and validation as a mixed person, you should have this available to you. Bill of Rights for People of Mixed Heritage. I have the right not just to justify my experience in this world, not to keep the races separate within me, not to justify my ethnic legitimacy, not to be responsible for people's discomfort with my physical or ethnic ambiguity. I have the right to identify myself differently than strangers expect me to identify, to identify myself differently than how my parents identify me, to identify myself differently than my brothers and sisters, to identify myself differently in different situations. I have the right to create a vocabulary to communicate about being multiracial or multiethnic, to change my identity over my lifetime and more than once, to have loyalties and identification with more than one group of people, to freely choose who I befriend and love. Uh, this can be found on the internet just by searching Bill of Rights for Mixed People. I have also posted it on all of the social media, Militantly Mixed platforms several times, so it is available. But those words, the first time I got a chance to read them, was basically everything I was wishing were true, but didn't believe about being a mixed person. But seeing that it is there in, in black and white to to have in my back pocket in case I ever feel invalidated or am self-invalidating, uh, I have the right to stake my claim and my own mixed race identity. And I appreciate Dr. Maria Root for releasing this back when she did. And I hope that you all use that to, to remind yourself that to remind yourself to be your mixed ass self, whatever that means for you at whatever time you are feeling a certain kind of way, it is valid and it is okay, and you are fine. <sighs> okay, without further ado, I want to get into today's episode, so please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, Kate.
tell everybody about yourself and let's get into it. Right. So hi, my name is Kate Medina. I am a fourth year at UC Berkeley entering my last semester. I am the internal executive director of Mixed at Berkeley Recruitment and Retention Center at Berkeley, and I am Korean Mexican. Thank you for joining me. And I really appreciate it because I know at the first time we started contact, being in contact, you were about to hit finals and it was going to be crazy at the end of yeah. last school year. So we're trying to get you in before um, before we get started on your last semester. And we did talk a little bit offline about how weird this experience has been. Your senior year has been basically you in the same place that you're sitting right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been a, it's been a non-senior year, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Has that kind of how does that make it, how does that impacted your education? Like, what do you feel you're getting out of this this past year versus your entire college experience? I I, I feel so nostalgic for towards the <laughs> my my past years at Berkeley. Like, you know, I just miss being able to just, just like walk outside, like having to hurry my butt over from one end of the campus to the other end of the campus within ten minutes. <laughs> I miss seeing people's faces. I miss being in the in the um, the Bridges uh, office where I could see my team mixed up Berkeley. I, I miss, you know, just grabbing food and eating outside with friends and whatnot. I just miss the small things. Yeah. Um, yeah, my whole senior year is is basically on Zoom and I'm still mourning the loss of like what could have been, right. you know, not only with for academically, but just personally, like mm-hmm. there's a lot of relationships that I know that I could have built, you know, in person, but it's right. not as easily feasible online and yeah I was talking to my brother the other day um and he told me like like I was telling him all the sad parts about like not having senior and he's like you're still a Berkeley student like you still have that like notoriety of being a Berkeley student I'm like just yeah yeah you don't go to Berkeley by accident you know you go you know you could go to any college right now Mm -hmm. and have a zoom experience and you get your education and that's great but Mm -hmm. you go to Berkeley to physically walk the campus that has yeah. been the seat of a lot of uh, civil rights um, work and mm-hmm. uh, uprisings have happened. All famous people have have mm-hmm. done work in those communities. So it's it's not an accident that you apply and go to Berkeley. You don't. It's not your fallback school. Yeah, definitely <laughs> you know, not. In most cases, so like I understand that you would grieve that experience, um, and especially if you're if you still live close too. I know some people mm-hmm. have gone you know back to wherever their homes were to do school, but it just takes, I understand that would, that would, that would bum me out into, yep. honestly, I did a, um, I did a remote master's program. It was an oh, really? online master's program. And this was 10 years ago when that was like kind of still new happening. Mm-hmm. And I forget, you know, that I had a master's because I didn't, I didn't have a, a grad school experience. I was mm-hmm. doing it all at home and I, I did make connections with some people that are my friends now, but you know, most of that was all developed online and it, it, it does feel less important than my BA when I actually got to be on a college, yeah. college campus. So I get that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's get into talking a little bit about you being Korean Mexican, what your upbringing is like and, and what the food is like. Cause I, <laughs> I, I love a, mi- a mixed food situation. So let's start out. Let's start there. <laughs> Do you have any foods that you mix between your uh, your Mexican and your Korean? You got anything that works together? Yes. So I'm a big fan of tapatio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love tapatio and everything is good. Pukumbap, which is just mixed rice. Kimbap, which is, you know, it, it looks like sushi, but it's not sushi. It has like vegetables inside and it's wrapped in seaweed. Um, I 
we can make tacos out of like Korean marinated meats. Um, my mom is Korean herself, and but she makes a lot of like Mexican food. So so like our so her children will be happy, and I'm always happy whenever she like <laughs> attempts to make Mexican food. She's not she's not bad actually. Like I nice. appreciate it a lot. It's delicious. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And then like when, um, whenever I would go visit my dad, cause my parents are divorced, like mm. we, he would not hesitate to like go to a Korean restaurant and try new things and, you know, use chopsticks. And it was, it's all very natural, you know, nice. it's, it's nice. Like the, the, the fusion or just incorporation of the other culture is, is like very smooth. That's awesome. Yeah. So has that's been the case of your whole child, like all your whole upbringing yeah. up till now? That's awesome. Yeah. Did you feel like you understood at a young age that you were mixed and what that meant to, uh, to non-mixed people? I'm going to separate that question by like pre-parents divorce and an after parents divorce. Okay. Cause like when my parents were still together, it was, you know, there's no question about it. I didn't even think about it. You know, the fact that my parents right. came from two parents. different backgrounds. I, you know, like I had my brother to, you know, relate to all these experience with like, you know, we were in this together. Like mm-hmm. everything is as it should be. This is what I was born into. You know, it's it's natural. But after the divorce and then when I moved schools and everything, I had entered a all Latinx elementary school. So mm-hmm. it was just a very stark, like a little bit like a kick in the face, you know, when when I entered that school with my brother, because like the students in that school um, did not have any experiences with, with people other than outside of their culture. So like right. we were like being taunted as like Chinese, like a lot of racial slurs. And like, we felt very ostracized from the rest of the school community. Also like within our church, like I would, when, because I stayed with my mom, like we would go to um, a Korean Presbyterian church. I still felt so different because like, like I could not relate hundred percent to what the, what the kids and even the teachers were saying. Right. And like, I stayed quiet because I felt like that was the only, my only defense, you know, be quiet. Don't reveal anything about yourself in church. Just do the service, mm. leave. That's leaving was what I was looking forward to. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, within this whole, like, like, I guess childhood experience, language was a huge barrier too, because, um, you know, my parents didn't speak each other's language. So their middle, middle, medium, middleman, I guess, uh, was English. So we yeah. would always constantly speak English. And I, I mean, of course, I know a few phrases here and there. I know the commands my mother tells me, you know, to <laughs> yeah. like do my chores and whatnot. And then whatever my dad says, Spanish is, comes a lot easier to me. Mm-hmm. Just, um, Did but you I was in not California. Yeah, I grew up, I, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Okay. So Spanish, yeah. you just kind of hear it, whether you are aware of it all yeah, the time it's just did. everywhere we are yeah mm-hmm. the the separation became more stark when I visited um uh, like both sides of my family separately and like yeah just yeah being quiet was was my defense you know even in my own family like I don't reveal that I cannot fluently speak Spanish if I be quiet then I can stay in the background mm-hmm. same with my Korean side of the family like I needed my mom to translate <laughs> um which was kind of tough but being quiet was the safe was the safe bet um and yeah, just like the only thing that, that could like tie me to my family, in my opinion, was like food. And then the fact that we loved each other and, and yeah. that, was, that was it. And that was enough. I mean, food, food helps. Like, I don't, I, I don't take the food part lightly at all. Like part of it's no. just fun because we have exposure to all different kinds of food from all different kinds of places. Exactly. And if we're lucky enough for those foods to work together, you know, then we can have like mm-hmm. little mixed dishes and things like that. I love that kind of stuff. That being said, sometimes I'm using food as a way to validate I am, in fact, 
a mixed Japanese or I am, you know, a mixed black mm-hmm. person or something like that. Like even yesterday, I've been missing my grandmother a lot and I can't cook the things she can cook. So I had to to get mm-hmm. takeout so that I can get, you know, something remotely close to mm-hmm. what she would make. And it was good, but it made me miss her more, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's not her food. It's not her food. So I think food, food is a stabilizing thing for us to, to make us feel mm-hmm. like we get it or we're, we're part of the culture. And yeah, language barriers, I have them too. So it, it, it's frustrating because you, you have an ear for it. You can kind of pick up some of it, not enough, but it's when someone realizes that you aren't fluent, that, that that's those moments where it really does, it does hit home. How do you think that affected your personality? Did it make you a quieter person in general because you were actively being quiet in spaces to not reveal your identity? Yeah, like I'm definitely more of the introvert in my family. Mm. Um, like I I think because I stayed quiet and I listened so much, I'm more of the observer mm. now within like, you know, my own personal spaces and friend groups and whatnot. And uh, I find that the bigger, bigger the group, the quieter I am, but the mm. smaller the group, the more vocal I am. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, it, it pays to be the observer sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you get, you get good information you wouldn't have heard otherwise. <laughs> so how did you get, once you got into Berkeley, how did you get connected with Mix at Berkeley and were you already mm. somewhat, I know quiet, but quietly vocal about being a mixed person before you got to school? Before, before I got to Berkeley or was ever accepted by um, the, what was it? Oh my gosh. What was that program called? Um, it was a program where seniors are like um accepted seniors are invited to to berkeley to basically like um find their community before they ever accept berkeley themselves oh gosh i forgot it's such a big event i'll figure it out i'll say it it's (laughs) like to be fair we all our memories are weird right now because of covid and not going not having outside stimulus so you're fine (laughs) don't feel bad thank you um but yeah but before Berkeley ever, you know, accepted me, like I, I struggled to find space. I tr- I struggled to like relate to different like monoethnic groups. Mm-hmm. My cultural background, uh, it was like I tried so hard to fit into like my the like the Mexican community, especially since I do not look Mexican. I very much look Korean. The yeah. Asian gene is very strong. <laughs> Although when you turn your head a little bit, you do kind of you shift a little. Oh. Like oh. yeah, you see like if your profile like slightly profile, I see it, which happens all the time. I'm actually looking for it when I'm talking to, to guests of the show because <laughs> I see it happen sometimes when someone's race just changes based on <laughs> where so the position is. So I, I can see most, yes, I can definitely see that you're a mixed Asian, but when you turn your head a little bit, I can go, oh, like, oh yeah, there's a little Mexican in there. I see it. <laughs> That's a relief. At least I show some, some part of my dad's side. <laughs> we get it where we get it. <laughs> exactly. Um, wait, wait, oh yeah, pre, pre-Berkeley, uh, I, I struggled to find space within my, my cultural backgrounds. Like I, I wanted to be more Mexican because I didn't look Mexican and I wanted to be less Korean because I looked Korean, but also I, mm. I had such a struggle fitting into the Korean community. Like I, I, I do not fit the mannerisms. I, I cannot be clicky. I'm just going to be very general about the Korean community. They're kind of clicky. And also I prefer Mexican food more. So like if I'm in Mexican spaces and that's, <laughs> oh, if I'm in Mexican spaces and that's, that's, that's preferable. My stomach will be happier. I got you. <laughs> 
No, I know. Like it is, but yeah, um, it, yeah. the Asian, regardless of what kind of Asian we are, those are sometimes it is harder to separate from the monolith because culturally, especially East Asian cultures, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the monolith is important. Like, you know, it it's, is. It is. That's a survival tactic. Yeah. yeah. So like we try, we try to speak not too generally about race and ethnicity in general, but it's hard to do that on the Asian side. Like mm-hmm. it, it really, really mm-hmm. is. So I understand that feeling of just like if your mannerisms are even slightly not in line with everybody else, that that means you're not Korean or you're not Japanese. Exactly. And that's tough for us. Yeah. It's harder to relate. And yeah, like but on an individual level, like if I'm talking one-on-one to someone I would I would try to make it as clear as possible to to show my identity and and more than what they perceive me as Mm. like an example of this would be like um like I was in I was in the seventh grade and I was like at a workshop with my with my mom and then the teacher presenting like he was presenting about scholarships that we could possibly apply to right and there was the Hispanic scholarship fund and um, he was presenting about it and he he used me as an example of someone who would never be able to get that scholarship. And then I just remember whipping my head around. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm half Mexican. And then he looks to my mom and she like confirms it, just like nodding. And Gosh. oh God, I hope he learned something, you know, like that was some bullshit like experience right, right there. Yeah. Hopefully he holds on to that one as a constant reminder to not make yeah. assumptions. Exactly. Uh, so the worst yeah. possible person for it to hit on is a, a mixed person who is definitely going to have identity and validation in that moment. Exactly. That sucks. And I, 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 throughout high school and middle school, like I tried so hard to like, you know, introduce myself. Like that's my fun fact. The fun fact is I'm mixed and I'm Korean Mexican and everyone's like, Oh, that's so cool. Wow. Can you speak? No. Oh, <laughs> that's the first question everybody asks. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Do they pick it up from your lit name too, though? Like yeah, your just, last name? No, they think I'm Filipino or something. Like even my PE teachers, I thought I was Filipino. That's true. I mean, not that that's bad, but that's not me. It happens to me too, because I'm. I grew up in Long Beach, so I grew up in a mostly black and Mexican community. Mm. I'm Japanese and black, and and mixed with white as well. Mm. Um, I identify more with the black side, even though I look the way that I look you know, I'm ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And so when I have long curly hair, they think I'm Mexican. When I have long straight hair, they think I'm Filipino because they can tell that I'm mixed, but they can't tell what that is. And it, they always go to just Filipino because it's well on the West Coast, they go to Filipino on the East Coast. They go to Dominican. So it depends on what coast. Oh, what? It's Dominican? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, on the on the East Coast, because they have more Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, they're used mm. to Latinx faces that have black um, features. Mm, and okay. so Dominicans in particular do have more black features, but you can tell they're Latinx. I have black features. My I look more Asian now because of the way my hair is, but um, my hair is longer. People think I'm Puerto Rican or Dominican. But if I'm here because we don't have many Dominicans on the West Coast and we have mostly Mexicans, mm. they think, OK, it's either Mexican or you're kind of vaguely Asian. So maybe Filipino. I feel like that way it's kind of a superpower. You know, you fit into <laughs> different groups you never thought you would be able to fit in. But, yeah, it's another it's another round of the game of how can we best label this ambiguous person? Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so when do you feel like you said something earlier, which is a feeling I've had 
many times throughout my life and I know others who listen to the show do as well of that thing of like because you look the way you look you kind of wanted to be the other thing mm-hmm. that you're mixed with for me I identify mostly with being black I was raised black I grew up in black community I was only Japanese at my grandma's house mm-hmm. you know my Japanese grandmother's house so but I'm yellow mm-hmm. and I have black straight hair so what am I going to do to try to affirm my blackness to people wherever I'm at? I'm at? Um, how did that for you, how did that manifest? Like, were there moments of just like feeling, oh my gosh, I need to, I need to look more Mexican today. Or do, does it flip between both cultures sometimes? I don't think I've ever found the the perfect recipe to look more Mexican. <laughs> I was just like, what if I put my hair in braids and wear hoop earrings? But then that's kind of problematic. <laughs> so no, um, but no, I just, I can't help the way I look. I'm just going to be vocal about it when the right. when the opportunity, opportunity arises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I don't know. Like when I, when I came into Berkeley and um, like, I, I was so grateful to be part of um, Mixed at Berkeley. We were called MSU back then. Like within my time as a director, we changed the name to oh, okay. Berkeley. I was just so grateful to be part of MSU because that was the first space that I ever encountered that was purely mixed. And I felt so mm-hmm. at home and so free, like, like despite people not being the same mix as I am, the fact that they had the same experiences and and beliefs and about being mixed, like was just so, was such a relief. Yeah. It, was, it made me so happy. But then I also realized, oh, I think I should like come into touch with like my Korean side a little bit more and then my Mexican side a little more. So I tried mm-hmm. to look into, you know, those monoethnic like groups. I tried joining CASA, which is the Korean American Student Association here. And that was not for me. I cannot drink as much as they do. I cannot be so social. <laughs> as an introvert, that exhausts me. More power to them. Whoever can can do that and pull that off. But no, not for me. And then, oh, when I know that about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. For my health and well-being, <laughs> I cannot do that. <laughs> but when I tried to join like um, like Latinx groups, uh, I I think I ostracized myself. You know, like I know mm. there were times where they're like, "Oh no, it's it's okay that you're here. Like you're you're Mexican. It's fine." But I myself did not believe that, and I yeah. didn't feel comfortable. Like my own head, I was just psyching myself out. So like I would just leave that space immediately and never come back. And Aww. like luckily enough, however, a friend this summer reached out to me. Um, and he's also mixed. He's my mix plus Japanese. Mm. And we're like, why don't we make our own Latinx Student Association together? And we did. We we did make our own group, and it's it's still new, but you know, we're we're gaining gaining traction a little bit. But like I feel like the difference with this is like we're not like Chicanx like focused we're mm-hmm. not like Mexican focused we want everyone of all backgrounds to come sure. and I feel like that's such a relief for me um because then people like me won't be so hesitant to to right. enter like monoethnic spaces quotation marks monoethnic spaces mm-hmm. um and just just find you know like fellowship with each other and it's it's right. easier yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly, that's been the, my trajectory as well during doing militantly mixed. So I've, I mean, I've been talking about being a mixed person my whole life. I Once I realized mm-hmm. people didn't see me as black as a teenager, I had to I, you know, I had to start talking more about my mix, my next mixed up. Yeah. Um, and we didn't have affinity groups when I was in school, like not for mixed mm-hmm. folks. We had I would try to go to the Asian ones. The Asian ones are tough again. Like we they about are. That. Oh, my gosh. Not being. Uh, part of the mono ethnic part like whatever that is because even amongst asian american affinity groups at school you have your your you know your chinese people who grew up in america but they speak chinese you have your korean folks that grew up in america but they speak korean 
you got your Japanese folks who don't speak Japanese <laughs> because they grew up here and they assimilate. You know, you might have some that speak Japanese, but a lot of them don't. And then you have your mixed ones that are just like, hi, we're trying to be here too. And that extra step of removal, like, and maybe it was my generation. It just wasn't a welcoming environment for someone like me. I hope that those spaces are a little bit more open now than they Mm -hmm. were back then. But um, the 90s was about like exerting your individualism within a tribe, which is very strange because everybody wanted to be unique, but they also wanted to be unique at the same way that their friends were, you know, it's very, it's a dumb time. Um, But now to see that schools have these places, uh, I've I've had this experience doing militantly mixed is at first it was like, I wonder if I can find some black Japanese white mixed Mm -hmm. kids. And then, and then it was just like, Oh, Hey, this black and white kid had the same experience I had. Oh, this Asian and, you know, Iranian kid had this similar experience I had. And I started to realize I was getting more out of the fact that, the mixed experience was happening across whatever our groups were. That being said, it's still really exciting when you meet someone who has your mix and, and has had like one instance in their life that is similar to one that you had, you know, um, exactly. We're tribal people, uh, uh, you know, humans tend to be tribal. So this is our little mm-hmm. way of like finding it however we can. I think it's important to create a Latinx Asian um, hybrid space because there's so many. And for some people, for some reason, people think those aren't two groups that mix, but all throughout South America, there's tons of Asian workers that went over to South America. And I didn't become, know that. Yeah. Peru has had a, a half Japanese president, but he's Peruvian. He's Peruvian mm-hmm. and mixed with Japanese generationally. Um, mm. But, and the Colombians has a very big Asian population. Um, the Chinese and Japanese in particular have gone through many parts of, of South America, including Brazil and stuff as well. So there's like actually a lot of South American Asian mixes. And then in Mexico, there are pockets mm-hmm. of, in particular about Chinese, that, yeah. but yes. you know, there are a lot of different Asian pockets there as well. So the fact that people don't realize there are so many mixed Asian Latinx people is very strange. Um, So I think creating a space like that, even as you're doing work for Mix at Berkeley, you know, maybe separate from that too, I think is important because your experience is going to be unique to a particular group of people and they're going to need to walk in and be comfortable, you know, especially if your names make you make people confused when they look at your face. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't know. They look up and like, explain, please. Uh, Yeah, like I don't have a smoother way of saying it. You see that face where they look at you and they're like, um, but you said you were (laughs) and why is your last name Medina? Um, That's funny. So, so with the Latinx and Asian fusion um, group, is that, is that something you're doing on campus or is that something you're doing like Facebook or out in the world somewhere? No, no, it's, it's on campus it's a campus group it's lsa latinx student association it's not it's not a specific um uh, asian and latinx fusion it's like the fact that the the, some of the directors are are you know this this mix and and some of the other directors are like peruvian and you got salvadoranian and you got mexican like a bunch of different backgrounds i feel like that's more welcoming towards a more diverse um uh, membership that's true because Mm -hmm. for the longest there's been mostly um what is it um uh, Mecha 
is one of the mm-hmm. so like one that has a very Mexican and Chicano based mm-hmm. um, motivation or something like that. Not like a spread out across all of Latinx type environment. I see what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Yes. That makes sense. Um, what kind? What do you get out of doing this work? What do you? What got you from being a participant at Mix at Berkeley versus becoming a director at Mix at Berkeley? Maybe this is a typical story within Mix at Berkeley people. But it's just like, you know, the fact that, God, what was the name of the program? I'm so mad. Um, <laughs> but being invited, being invited as a, as a um, high school senior to Berkeley mm-hmm. and getting to experience that like community and the possibility of continuing to be in this community while at Berkeley was just so special. And like you found your pocket of people, you're not gonna let that go so easily. So you're gonna have to join that group that invited you over, right? right. So whether it be, you know, mixed up Berkeley, whether it be Raices, whether it be CAS, which is for Filipino Americans, like there's we have seven different um, recruitment and retention centers under bridges who 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 do invite students over. That's one of our events that we have have every um spring semester. So you're going to want to hold on to that. You're going to want to find fellowship within that. You're going to want to join. And there are like opportunities that come with being within these recruitment and retention centers. You got scholarships, you got, you know, events that cater towards your interests. You got, you know, academic support, everything that you could look for within a group when you're starting out at a new huge school is there. So I stuck by it. I was with it. I was with Mixed at Berkeley for four years. This is my fourth year now. And Mm -hmm. so from intern to I I then tra- uh, uh, moved on to becoming a retention director for two years and that's basically like cultivating our um, Berkeley community you know within within our own students like inviting people over we ha- we throw events that you know ranging from like uh, like having like an internship or a fellowship uh, opportunity for our community members to you know, having more social events like making slime or Valentine's Day social or to events that um, cater more specifically towards like our features and our beliefs and stuff like that. So like our curly hair event was was definitely more popular, mm-hmm. I think, because it was fellow run and it, it people were, were um, learning about how to take care of themselves and their hair and yeah. and therefore empowering themselves through through their ambigu- ambigu- ambiguity, ambiguous ambiguity. There you go. Thank you. (laughs) Just super powerful. And even me, like I don't have textured hair, but like I could see how people were so excited to, Mm -hmm. you know, learn this new part of themselves by people who are like themselves. So um, I feel like Mixed at Berkeley is definitely like a very powerful, important um, group on campus. And and I think we should continue to stay like that. And and (laughs) spaces like this are definitely important, especially for people of my background. I'm, you know, a person of color. I'm low income. Like I would not have come to Berkeley if it if we're not for groups like this or, um, you know, nonprofits and stuff like that, I need a village to like get me here. And the fact that there is a, you know, a place where I can reach out and seek support and friendship, like that's super powerful. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing too to see like how much that actually aids in your educational development or I guess even probably your development as a person when you get community support versus when you don't. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I like I said, I grew up in Long Beach. I'm a hood kid. The fact that I've been able to do any of the things that I have been able to do has a lot to do with other people stepping in and helping me mm-hmm. do that because I wouldn't have had the resources on my own. So I think also being having benefited from an experience like that, doing work towards benefiting others is another layer of kind of, you know, reinforcing how important it is because if it had, they, somebody helped you 
and you want to give back and, and help to others. Is is that something that you think you'll carry outside of Berkeley? Like, what is it yeah. that you want to do once you get out of school? That's a loaded question. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, uh, I forgot to mention, yes, um, my fourth year now, I starting from last semester, I'm internal executive director. So, like, that's, I, I, I moved up a lot. I yeah. think. And so now I'm facilitating spaces and, and directors. And I feel like, you know, me with my co Katrina, Katrina Bullock, um, she's the external inter- uh, executive director. Like, I think we're doing a great job so far, given the circumstances of right. COVID, which is very hard. Right. Um, I think we're trying our best to, you know, sustain this community. Yeah. That's for your question about what I want to do after Berkeley. I, I still don't know specifically what I want I think I'm more of a go with a flow type of person mm-hmm. type of person and I think that's my my major is indicative of that because I made my own major it's consisted of three topics it's um environmental science uh design and ethnic studies and okay. um it's just well, topics that I yeah there's a there's a lot I think it's very broad and general and it gives me a lot of uh, room to work with but looking back at my time at Berkeley and with, especially within um, Mixed at Berkeley, I think I want to head into like the nonprofit sector first, mm-hmm. like maybe towards education or maybe towards like identity or something like that. I want to, I want to kind of like pay back, pay forward a little bit. There you go. Pay it right. forward a little bit for, so other students can, you know, like be comforted a little bit by the fact that they are who they are. And it's, it's beautiful. And like, if you need extra help, like I want to be that person to extend that hand. Yeah. But I first got to find the perfect nonprofit to work I still need to look for it but yeah that's I think that's where I'm gonna head off first before deciding anything else um yeah and so yeah it does absolutely um and so getting a chance to work within the organization like this is maybe kind of even giving you a few little ideas of how you can make that work if you find an existing nonprofit and if you don't you can make your own and (laughs) And do work more specifically. <laughs> like, calm down, calm down. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's crazy. Like when I when I started militantly mixed, um, my first goal was to selfishly meet other mixed people to talk to them because I grew up. That's with, a great reason, right? Like I grew up with my mixed um, brother, my mixed cousins. We lived in the same house. Mm-hmm. All of our my aunts and uncles were mixed because both of my parents are mixed, so um, multi generational. So I was never not around mixed people. I I also grew up on military bases. So we were always around mixed families. It wasn't until we became civilians and I lived in, I moved to a white suburb that I realized that there weren't people like me all over the place. So I have, I think I have a slightly unique mixed experience in that my mixedness was constantly validated. It wasn't until mm-hmm. I left that bubble that I started to realize there was going to be identity problems and, and stuff based off of the other people that I was around. So when I started Militantly Mixed, I was just feeling the void of not having my mixed family around me all the time, not being around my mixed friends from military bases and stuff like that. So I wanted to recreate that. And Militantly Mixed was kind of how I started to do that. But then very quickly, it, it kind of also became a therapeutic thing in that I wasn't feeling isolated and the people I was talking to weren't feeling isolated anymore because there was this other person somewhere on the planet who was feeling very similarly. And then as the show continued to grow, it got harder and harder to not want to pay forward to somebody what the guests and the listeners had been giving me. And so now this is a whole different monster than it was when I started. At first, it was just like my cute little way of trying to make mixed friends. And now it's, you know, a combination of I'm creating like family, I'm, I'm creating community mm. through through mm. this. And in doing so, I have opportunities to to be of service, to be helpful. 
And I think being a Berkeley student, you might be very community minded anyway, because of the nature of that university and the history of that university as being very service to your community oriented. Yeah, the plight, the, the plight of your of your experience with uh, militantly mixed sounds a lot like what Katrina and I are trying to reorient um, mixed at Berkeley towards. Because like at first, yes, it was a space um, to find other people to to like revel in our mixedness, mm-hmm. um, to be to finally find pride within ourselves and 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 have friends who who are like minded as as us. And it's cute, it's great. Like we we have to love ourselves first. But for a while, that kind of became stagnant in in my eyes. Like you know, like uh, the same programming message is was occurring year after year, and we wanted to expand mm-hmm. a little bit more. So um, the more traction that you know, mixed up Berkeley got the more that we felt like we needed to reorient and start like adding a more educational lens into mixed up Berkeley because like as mixed people, we do have a privilege, a privilege of seeing into multiple different cultures and and being able to see the intersectionalities between all of them and more power to us, right? But that gives us a responsibility to, you know, act a certain way and, and you know, just fight like white supremacy and, and supremacist views about like what it means to be a person of color, what it means to be a mixed person. So yeah, that's our responsibility. So like me and Katrina have been creating a curriculum for Mixed at Berkeley, starting within our directors for us to like relearn and re-educate like what it means to be mixed. And like we we um, started talking about like what it means to be privileged. And then we talked about like racial imposter syndrome and code switching and colorism and like anti-blackness within our spaces. Like we we started introducing topics like that so that we can, you know, maybe maybe walk a little bit away from the cute, like, oh, we're mixed stuff mm-hmm. to more of a like social justice, like empowerment sure. um, role. So like we definitely think like, like, Groups like Mix Up Berkeley and then other um, recruitment and intelligence centers can be more empowering in that way. Not only finding fellowship, but also like like giving us a responsibility within our communities yeah. as people of color, mixed people. I also think like the fellowship aspect is the thing that supports the mission. Mm-hmm. Like you can be mission, 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 mission and exhaust yourself and wonder at some point, why am I doing this? But you have that fellowship element to it and it reminds you it humanizes Mm -hmm. the experience of other mixed people not just your own because I know I have a very specific mixed experience you Mm -hmm. have a very specific mixed experience but when you see what is affecting other people it's like oh it reminds you why you're doing this work and it kind of re-energizes the next the next step so I think both are important and I I'm I'm glad that like the the craving of fellowship was the reason why I started something, you know, mm-hmm. or got involved in anything at all to get to the mission. Because if I started out with the mission, I'm not sure I would have been as successful because I don't know what would have kept me like what would have been my foundation. Um, yeah. But you have to remember, you know, the village, if 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 you if the village has a need and you can support that need, um then the work pay the work is meaningful, but you have to that's be able true. to see the impact to be able to to keep motivated for it. So I think that's that, true. I think both of those things are absolutely important, and it's it's a bold thing to transfer something over from being purely social to having a social justice or a um, you know civil rights push to it too. Because I mean, I think it's an easy thing that's going to happen specifically at Berkeley, but I also think you can get really complacent in a, a reputation, yes. um, which I think Berkeley does have sometimes is like, we're the school that does this thing so that when something problematic does surface, it's like, oh, but remember how we used to be the one that did this thing? <laughs> <laughs> 
Exactly. It's it's good that you still have those, those avenues to be able to do that. What's your, gosh, what has the school year been like? I, I can't even try to grasp what it's, what it's like to want to stay motivated, still feel like you're doing school, that you're, that everything has a purpose while having to be indoors all the time. Do you get, do you have satisfaction? Like what is happening? What, how do you get to feel like your mixed ass self when you're stuck at home all day? Uh, I, it's definitely hard and burnout, I feel like comes a lot quicker with, yeah. especially within the, during the quarantine. Cause you know, you, you can't have as much face-to-face time as, as you did before. And that was, yeah. you know, one of the joys of being at, at, at Berkeley, a mix at Berkeley, <laughs> yeah. you know, face-to-face time. Right. But yeah, I don't know. Just mix at Berkeley, like our, our organization, we, we tried so hard to sustain ourselves and our membership. And at the beginning of the year, it was great because like all of a sudden we had like 60 people show up to like our, our little mixer at the beginning of the year. And who are people, people who are interested in, in, you know, like trying to, to feel like they belong especially at a time where you cannot possibly belong anywhere because you are at home. Right. Um, so yeah, this it's, it's been tough, you know, like I, I've checked out so many times I've burned out quite a few times, but then just remembering that there are people who need me and I just, I just, I just have to continue on and, and, you know, work. And like, it's so easy to just ignore, you know, your Mm -hmm. responsibilities generally, like even without being thinking about being mixed, generally it's easy to ignore your responsibilities, but like, remembering there are people who need you and you need to you need to make this organization survive somehow like that's your responsibility this is this is your baby essentially right <laughs> once you're a director it makes up Berkeley's your baby that's true and then you have to also be continuing to do the work while transitioning out and exactly waving yeah. in the next the next group of people and also trying to maintain enthusiasm for the organization mm-hmm. as you are stuck at home and they're stuck at home. Yeah. I think the challenges that the uh, sheltering in place and, and quarantining had for any of us that do, because Militantly Mix was always this way. I was already, mm-hmm. you know, FaceTime or Zooming with people all um, beforehand, but, but the problem is monitoring the traffic now that it's mm-hmm. so much more traffic than it was before. So if I end up in a room with like 15 or 16 faces on a screen, it's harder to make sure that everybody feels seen and validated when the whole goal of what you're doing is to try to see and validate people, you know, um, on any of these mixed race, like group mm-hmm. group events and stuff like that. So I imagine there are a whole different levels of, tra- of um, challenges to retention and recruitment. Yeah in the group when it's possible that you might have 60 people on a screen and you can't talk to all of them and you can't focus exactly. on all of them. Are there things that you seek out in, ter- in terms of your, like your own identity? Are there things that you are trying to actively seek out since you don't get to be outside as often right now to connect to your cultures? Food is, yeah, is the number one answer. You know, just everyone, everyone wants to, you know, because you have to stay in, you're going to want to cook more, right? You're going to want to be more, um, exploratory with your with your meals and stuff like that so that's what I've been doing especially when like in the summer when I was back home in LA um like with my mom like we tried a bunch of different recipes like I made video which is like I feel like that's super like like trending in TikTok right now birria like tacos and whatnot but it's, it's essentially supposed to be like a goat broth kind of but you don't have to use goat you can use beef or whatever you want um but the fact that it's like a saucy meat is 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 the main point of that but yeah I made that myself and I ate it and I felt super satisfied because I couldn't go out to the food truck you yeah. know with my abuelita to like actually eat and drink right. 
birria. Um, so I made that myself. And then we tried a bunch of different, you know, like I, I made dumplings with my mom because that's that's what we do, you know, yeah. during times of celebration. But there's no there's no celebration. We just got to fill the time and right. our stomachs. And you make a good point about being an L.A. based person and not having food truck life because food trucks are such a big part of all pockets of L.A. culture, like regardless of what ethnic group you are from. um, It is such a huge part of of how we we get some like good, dirty street food and we don't get we don't Mm -hmm. get it right now. We have to get the door dash everything and it's not exactly the same. Um, I I really hate the waste for door. I mean, I I, I like eating from different restaurants, but I hate waste. I hate waste. That's what we have to live with. Yeah, I agree. I feel I feel like I also feel guilty to like risk this other person's life to go and grab me some food exactly. just to bring it to my doorstep and stuff like that. I'm definitely dealing with I am a terrible cook. So I this is how I have to survive because I don't. Cook. <laughs> <laughs> and if I do cook, I, don't, I won't eat it because it's terrible. Um, oh, no. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's fun that you get a chance. So is both sides of your family here in LA though? Do you still, even though your parents are separate, do you still get to see both sides? I mean, not as much as before, but my mom is the only person who immigrated from her family from Korea because she was tired of, you know, like what I understand is that she was tired of like the social um, rules Korean people had. Like she, she really didn't want to, you know, continue in that way it was frustrating for her and um so she decided to like you know come to america and make it and make her own life and mm-hmm. obviously like she misses her family there but she'd sure. rather be independent she's an independent lady she's hella strong i love her nice and then but my dad my dad has his 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 like a, a good portion of his family in in la so like i do get to see my abuelita um i i talk to my uncles quite a bit yeah and then yeah, it's just it's 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 nice that there's a there's at least some semblance of family mm-hmm. during especially during um quarantine um that I can talk to. But for my mom, I I bet she's feeling lonely too. Yeah. Like she's only ever like had to talk to her family on through the phone. And it's I feel like that's really tough. Yeah. yeah. So you haven't been able to go um, no, no, I, me neither. I mean, first of all, tickets are hard. To, yeah. <laughs> tickets are expensive. Yeah. And then also just, I, I, I prefer not to risk anything through the airline. Right. Oh, no, no. I'm not just talking about COVID, but like, have you ever oh. been able to visit family in Korea or anything? Yes. Once in 2011, I was 12 okay. <laughs> for three weeks. And uh, I, I only remember like my family and food. <laughs> yeah, food, food again food again common theme here what else is there to do besides eat <laughs> i'm just gonna eat real fast in terms of like so you touched on it earlier and and it's something that i relate to too like i mentioned th- that thing of of sort of wanting to be wanting to flip what you look like to to match what mm-hmm. you what you identify as how how fluid is your identity do you do you feel like you jump between them pretty easily or do you always feel like a Mexican with a Korean face or do you feel like because I mean that's my deal I feel like a black girl with a, a yellow ambiguous Asian Latinx looking face um I feel like I'm neither really yeah like I know I feel like as mixed people we walk a fine line between our cultures and stuff mm-hmm. like we're both we both belong and we do not belong within yeah. these cultures and I feel like I've you know I've internalized it to a point where I'm just like I'm neither but mm. I guess I participate in both and I look more of a certain way, but I certainly do not feel that way. Right. Um, so yeah, I just, I've become a spectator and 
but when when those moments come where you're just like yeah that's home to me like yeah. ah, I love it I miss it then then I'll have those moments of course yes. but but most of the time I do feel like an outsider and I'm just watching oh, um, yeah I mean, that is part of, that's a part of this experience. I know there's times what I'm trying to reclaim for myself now, even at my age um, versus other times is the being more than rather than not enough of. Mm. Not enough of has been the theme of almost every mixed person that I know. Like you're like my literal family was the ones telling me I wasn't Japanese enough to be considered Japanese that or, sucks. or like h- t- hiding from my Japanese family that we were black because we didn't want them to know we were, you know, tainted in some way, shape or form with quotation fingers uh, with the, where the white side is just like, they're there, but I don't know them. And yet technically I'm half white. Like it's very bizarre to have this half ethnic identity that I didn't grow up with anybody who had that. I didn't, you know, that, that mm-hmm. was white besides my British grandmother. So there's all this stuff of just like, I'm not enough. I'm not British enough. I'm not Japanese enough. I'm not black enough. Now that I'm old and like, like personally, I like being old. I want to be, I'm trying to be older than I actually am. I'm, I'm a curmudgeon and I'm like, I want to sit on a porch swing and like yell at kids. Um, <laughs> that's the dream. That's, that's the, the dream, dream, right? Like, I just want to pull my socks way too high and wear an oversized <laughs> shirt and just sit on the porch and yell at kids. Um, that's, that's goals. That's life goals for me. Um, but, be, be, <laughs> um, but, but with that, I, you know, I, I want to, claim for myself that I have this benefit that some moderation that most people don't have, or at least moderation people don't have, um, is that I can, I have multiple cultures to, to pull from. I, I can be Japanese today. I can be black today. I can be British today. I can do it multiple times in a day and I can double back to the one I just was a few minutes ago if I want to. And that's something that they don't get to do. And to me, that should translate into, I have more, (laughs) you know, not to, not, not in a way of like, I'm better than you're better than that kind of stuff, but in a way of just like stop reducing myself in my own story, which I think is something that we do as mixed people a lot. You know, we defer to the real, you know, whatever fill in the blank ethnicity like the the 100 percenters we we defer to them and i don't think we necessarily should have to because we are a part of the story now too and you not being the only korean mexican mixed person out there you just have to find the other you know you just have to find other people that feel like you that you can that you can understand that a little bit better which I know is what we do attempt as we join Mixed at Berkeley or we start a podcast about mixed people, you know, that is, that is the, that's the goal and the effort that we're putting in. With that in mind, since you do do so much um, in terms of mixedness, do you find yourself continuing to struggle with your identity from time to time? Of course, like, like what you, everything that you had just mentioned reminds me of the Mixed Bill of Rights. And it's just basically mm-hmm, like absolutely. a piece of paper empowering yourselves and and reminding yourselves you know you're you're more than what people say and perceive you to be you are you are so much more you are so much more powerful and so much so much more beautiful than what what people think of you to be and forget people you know like right. like entering co- like pre-college I was definitely in the mindset of like I'm not enough I cannot belong here I I will just you know I'm, I'm a wallflower. Don't look mm-hmm. at me. But after college and then joining Mixed at Berkeley and then reading the Mixed Bill of Rights and, and entering like ethnic studies classes and stuff like that, like that definitely empowered me. So it's less of a me problem, but it's more of a you deal with me being mixed problem. Exactly. And I, I will not educate you in anything, but I'm just going to be happy and satisfied with myself because I am bombastic and amazing. 
I love it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, that's important because I think I think generationally, like people that were mixed before me, they come from generations where you're not supposed to talk about it. And then yeah. my generation kind of talked about it, but only if you had to. Like there were more amb- ambiguous looking <laughs> people from my from my like second generation mixedness than than like moder- than like a biracial folks that preceded me. And so you kind of had to address it sometimes mm-hmm. because people needed to to know. But it still wasn't comfortable to talk about. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in in your generation, we're getting closer to being able to be more out of the closet about our mixedness. That being said, we're still dealing with people that are uncomfortable yeah. with us, um, thinking that it takes away from them in some way, shape, or form, or reduces the ethnic groups and cultural groups in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. I can see that within my own family too. Yeah. Just like, like within, like my Korean grandparents, like I'm sure they did not prefer my mom to marry someone out, out of the Korean Korean um, community. And then for my, I. I don't think my abuelita cared so much. Like she was like, oh, your, your, your mom is very beautiful type of thing. But like I had talked to my <laughs> dad's dad and I, I asked him like, is it okay that I mixed? Like, is it like, did you want your son to marry someone who wasn't Mexican? And, and then he just like looked at me for a while. I know he was hesitating, but he's like, mm-hmm. no, it's beautiful. And I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Grandpa. <laughs> thanks for giving me that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it is a challenge for people, especially cultural groups that that hang so hard together. You know, like like Mexican mm-hmm. families. Your family can be so huge, but everybody feels like immediate family. That's not really the case on British in British mm-hmm. families. Like my my dad's mom's side of the family like they spread out over the world and they may or may not talk to each other and that just is what it is now right Mm -hmm. so I don't feel like I have this like touchstone to all these people because they spread out and you know left whereas when I am around like my black family or 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 black people I grew up with you feel like family just because you grew up down the street from each other you know Mm -hmm. I think those these types of cultural groups that do have that sense of of like wanting to stay together I think it is a little bit of a struggle for them to to welcome mixedness but as they do I it's really nice when we have those those family members that are it's funny like you said your abuelita was like oh she's pretty so that's fine like it wasn't it wasn't about her race it was about whether or not she was attractive exactly (laughs) and that's cute That's sweet. All right. Well, we are coming a little bit to to the end of this. And one question that I like to ask everybody that comes on the show is because I know that we deal with challenges as, as mixed people. But what do you love most about being mixed? That I'm not limited by whatever my culture says is has to be um mm-hmm you know, done or fulfilled, you know, like I, whatever my family says, who I can date, what I can do, whatever, I'm not going to follow that because it doesn't apply to me because my parents didn't do the exact same thing. So Mm -hmm. therefore I I feel more empowered to, you know, do the things that I want and love the people who I want and, you know, believe the things that I want because like I've, I I feel like I am the representative of, of, you know, not conforming, I guess. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, yeah. (laughs) thank you (laughs) I mean I think anything that that reminds you that you're fine you're fine yes you know like that's that's what's more important because I think we put a lot of stock in what other people feel about us and Mm -hmm. and we forget we minimize ourselves in our own stories so I'm glad that you're making those efforts even though you say you're introverted and quiet I'm I'm that I'm not quiet, 
but I am introverted in that I just generally prefer to be alone, but I like being on Zoom with people. So I get my social element without having to be forced to hug people. Um, <laughs> I got a hugging issue. <laughs> um, so it's, that's understandable. You know, More power to you. <laughs> it's, it's it's a cultural thing. For two sides of my culture, like the Japanese and the British aren't huggers. So I <laughs> like I'm only a, I'm really only huggy to black people and then everybody else I'm not. It's very weird, but it's a code switch too. It's like I grew up hugging black people and it was fine i grew up trying to hug my japanese family and they didn't like it so i learned not to and then my british family don't even try so yeah it's i just have a weird thing about hugging and i love zoom um socialists because i then i don't have to address it awkwardly um, to people but separate from all of that i you know i like i like hearing that you are actively trying to maximize yourself in your own story versus minimize Two, also because we come from east asian cultures i think it's i definitely know it's the case for japanese but i i also have heard it's similar for koreans where the group is more important than the individual so how dare you be loud or be bombastic or you know that kind of stuff uh, is a big part of our of the cultures that we come from so you know claiming our own individual version of our cultures, I think is important too. So I'm glad it just makes me so happy because I know that people, I've been talking to people for a couple of years now doing this work and I hear it. I, I hear the trends of people not feeling comfortable mm-hmm. owning their story to, to now where people are starting to get. So I'm really glad that you're doing that work both for yourself and for people that are going to be around you because it's going to resonate. Mm-hmm. People are going to see it. And I appreciate we, we want people to grow within their mixedness and and their own identities. Like that's the point. Like I hope for a lot of people, like mix at Berkeley will be the beginning of their mixed journey. Yeah. And then by the end of it, they'll be a hundred percent themselves and yeah. love themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So why don't you uh, let everybody know how they can find Mix at Berkeley if they're looking for it or anything else that you want to share? Yes, yeah, so you can find Mix Up Berkeley on Facebook, which is Mix Up Berkeley Recruit- Recruitment and Retention Center. Mix Up Berkeley also has an Instagram, which is at Mix Up Berkeley. And then as for me, you can find me on Instagram, which is uh, at Peace of Kate, which double underscores after every word. So Peace double underscore of um, double underscore Kate. And that's as, on Facebook as well, just Kate Medina. <laughs> thank you (laughs) i love putting your name into things i mean i'm charmaine so i say main everything main hustle is my is my media company main thing i I love puns man i love it so i'm i 100 appreciate your your instagram handle that's so cute Oh, well, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. Um, any, thank any you for having me. I can help leverage the work that you all are doing. You know, I'm I'm here for you guys. I'm I'm pro Mixed at Berkeley. But also as you venture outside, anything you got going on, always feel free to to come back and leverage militantly Mix or me or whatever. I'm I'm here to I'm here to support however I can. I do appreciate you. Thank you, Charmaine. And thank you for having me. And thank you for creating a platform like Militantly Mixed. It's just so powerful and empowering. And like, I feel, I don't know, I feel great that I'm able to share my story with like a wider audience that isn't for me. Militantly Mixed is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. 
If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantly mixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.